coming in here sometimes. I feel a little selfish because I get to come in into this worship setting and I still get to hear this dynamic music coming from this dynamic musical staff and I, and I still get to have my, what I consider my Sunday experience. And I know it's difficult for you in the place that you are, but I think that may be one of the things that God is trying to tell us, that it doesn't matter physically where we are. As long as we worship him in spirit and in truth, he'll abide with us and he'll be with us. So make your home into the sanctuary that you want it to be. And if there's trouble and struggle in your home, then pray that the Lord will straighten out the circumstances such that it can become the sanctuary you need, you want, and your family needs. God, I love you. And I'm so glad today that we're here trying to, uh, trying to uh, make sure that we maintain a spirit of normalcy. I got on this, on this Magic City jersey today. It's my, my, my uh, throwback because I want to remind us that if things were operating as they had been, we'd be in the middle of a new baseball season right now. And we, we got a strong history right now in Birmingham. We, we had some folk who went through some struggles back in the day just to be able to play basketball. And they were gripped by poison, baseball. They were gripped by the poison of racism. It stopped them from being all they could be under those circumstances. And look at the major leagues now. Look at how we've come through those circumstances. We are an overcoming people, and we will come through this situation bigger, better, stronger than we've ever been. Today, I want to take you into a new passageway. We've been delving and dealing with the uh, New Testament for the last few weeks, of course, because we've been celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to get back to the Old Testament this week. I want to take us back into maybe a familiar passage of Scripture for a familiar story for some of you. It may not be so familiar for others. But there is a relevant lesson, a right now word, as we are used to saying, from the Lord. And it's found in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21, detailing the story of the children of Israel as they journeyed from captivity to the promised land that God had provided for them. You'll find in Numbers chapter 21, starting at verse 9, a story that I believe can help us in some ways right now, today. Let me read it for you, starting at verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4 reads, then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. That's important. But the Lord grew impatient with the long, but the people grew impatient with the long journey. And they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord allowed poisonous snakes to go among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord 
and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bidden will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. This morning, just for a little while, if you'll follow along with this thesis that I have, I want to use as a central thought, look and live. Look, look and live. If you know some Bible history, you know about the struggles that the children of Israel had under the foot of Pharaoh. He was using all this free labor to build Egypt into the economic powerhouse of the day. And God got tired of hearing the cries of his people. And so he laid a plan for them to be rescued from the bondage in Egypt. He sent an emissary by the name of Moses to lead them out. Moses first had to challenge Pharaoh. Pharaoh became hard-hearted and refused to allow the children to leave. God had to show him who was the big man on campus. Over a series of plagues, God presented to Pharaoh the inevitable fact that Pharaoh couldn't fight with him. And before long, the children of Israel, the Hebrew, were leaving Egypt in mass numbers. What I think is lost often on people as they study the exodus from Egypt is the sheer number of people who were leaving at that time. The estimates fall in the range of two to four million people were leaving Egypt during the exodus. Now I want you to put into context how it takes, how long it takes two to four million people to travel together. What kind of footprint do two to four million people leave as they move along any given pathway? The story that we are reading today, the passage of scripture that we have, ironically takes place near the end of the journey that Israel took to get away from Egypt. Now watch this. It's 40 years later. Somebody say, how can it be 40 years later for them leaving Egypt and getting to the promised land? Well, it's 40 years later because of some circumstances that happened along the way. God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt 40 years earlier. It took them two years to reach the Jordan River. Two years from the time they were freed from Egypt. And yet here we are 38 years later, and we got a problem. See, during the time that they were leaving and approaching the Jordan River two years after the exodus, the people refused to go over Jordan. They arrived at the Jordan, but they had a lack of faith that refused 
to yield to what God was telling them. Now, this is the same God who had just gotten them out of bondage in Egypt two years earlier. This is the same God who had been providing for them all along the way. And yet they get to a junction. The same God who pulled them through the Red Sea and opened them up and let them walk through on dry land. This is the same God who promised them that he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they were not faithful enough when they got there to the Jordan River to follow the same God's directors. You know the story. He sent some spies over. They came back and did not believe that God was bigger than the giants in the land that they saw. Only two came back. And that was Joshua and Caleb. And so God said he wouldn't allow a faithless generation of people to go into his promised land. And so for 38 years, God patiently waited until every member of that faithless generation, except for Joshua's family and Caleb's family, every one of them had to die out before God would allow them to go into the promised land. So here we stand, 40 years later. During that 38-year period after they reached the Jordan banks, God had been faithful to them. Despite the fact that they had been faithless to start this whole episode, God's still good to you. Somebody in here know what I'm talking about. How God will still be with you even though you're not paying any attention to God. God still provides for you even though you haven't given God the glory or the credit for anything he's done. God was still good for them, to them during those 38 years. Watch this. Not much food runs around in the desert. God had been good enough to them to, to provide manna for them every day for 38 years they had it. Not only that, he had led them from place to place during this 38-year period, and he had protected them from the enemies who were trying to pick them off one by one during this time. God had been faithful to his children. But in the text that we studied a few minutes ago, the text that we read, they got to Mount Hor and discovered that in order for them to reach the destination, they needed to go through Edom. The only problem was the Edomites would not allow them to come through their land. And because of that, they were forced to take a journey around Edom, and therein lies the problem because the land around Edom was harsh desert. It was mountainous, it was rough, and it was desolate. They, they forgot that the same God who had gotten them there would be the one to take them around through the desert, even though it was rough. But it just seems that they had had enough at this point. And as they're journeying around Mount Hor, journeying around Edom, they start to grumble. They start to murmur. They become, the word that's used in the text is discouraged. The word that's used in the original text has the connotation of meaning shortened, which means that during this time, their tempers got short. They were frustrated. They're out of patience. The whole process was just too much for them. You know how it is when you get mad about one thing, 
depending on your attitude, you start fussing about that one thing, but then you make a list of some other things that have gotten on your nerves too. And it's usually not the thing that you got mad about, it's the stuff you put on there that didn't have anything to do with the problem that starts creating turmoil. Their frustration over the path that they were forced to take brought to the surface these other complaints and they start complaining about look watch this now of all the things you want to start complaining about god is not one you should start complaining about not the one who's been taking care of you for 40 years they complain about god they complain about moses they complain watch this now they haven't had to hit a a, a, a lick at a stick but they complain about the food that god has been giving to them and then they complain about water. You know this. There's a story in here, in this passage, in this journey, where God has told them, you don't have to worry about water. And then he proves he can make water jump out of a rock. Same God and these same folk. But sometimes folk have short memories. They complain about the manna. Manna. Angel's food is what scripture refers to it as. They complain about it. Watch this, Alvin. If you remember, manna was that miracle food that God allowed to come to them every day. It fell on the camp at night like dew. And in the morning, you could gather enough for you and your family for the next day. This is the quality that manna had. You could gather enough for you and your family for the next day, enough of a portion and it had a quality that God could only do that made it go stale after a day, which means you couldn't store it up, give us this day, our daily bread. And so folk would go out there and get enough manna for breakfast, enough manna for lunch, and enough manna for dinner. I don't know if a snack was included in there, but they had enough for the day, this manna. And yet they started complaining about the manna. Not only was the manna obviously nutritious, it kept them healthy for 40 years. It had to be delicious. You could bake it, you could boil it, you could cook it in all kinds of ways. A whole lot of folks finding out that they got some stuff in the cabin, cabinet that they can do different things with right now. Somebody ought to know what they were feeling out there. You're getting creative on your cooking right now. But they were complaining about manna. Watch this. A researcher went and calculated how much manna it would take to feed the children of Israel during that time. And the calculations were in order to feed two to more million people during this time, it would take 240 boxcars of manna every day to feed them. 240 boxcars of food showing up in the morning every morning for 40 years and you got the nerve to tell God you're not grateful. 240 boxcars show up full of provision. In chapter 21, Israelites start out on God's team. Look, look, even up until the beginning of this chapter that we're in, they're loving God because he's just given them victory over one of their enemies. But watch this, Reg. It don't take but three verses. From the time they're saying hallelujah to the time they say we ain't thinking about you, God. We're tired of that. Three verses is all it took for folk to turn their back on you. And so what I want to teach you today is there's a lesson 
that we can learn because of what happened to them when they started fussing and complaining about the Lord. Now, I, you can read into this message whatever you want to read into it, but I came to tell you that God won't take us disrespecting him. God won't take us not appreciating him. God won't take us not understanding who it is that's putting bread on the table. He won't take that. The first thing you got to know from what I just read to you is that Israel sinned in a bold way. In a bold way. Not, not just a little bit. If you want to measure sin, this was about as bold as they come. Yeah, first of all, they rejected the person of God. They insulted God himself. They implied that God wasn't who he said he was. And that, in other words, that he wouldn't keep his word and take them to the promised land. Remember now, they're not there yet. But 40 years later, God has been keeping his part of the bargain. All they've been doing is showing up. Look, this is what the scripture says. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said unto them, would God we had died in the land of Egypt. Now, if, if that doesn't reek of being ungrateful, if that doesn't reek of being dissatisfied with God who's been nothing but good to you, so they reject God's person. Not only that, they are rejecting clearly the promise that God has made to them. Yeah, yeah. They said that, wherefore have ye brought us out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness? God didn't tell them he was going to stop them in the wilderness. He told them and promised them that I'll take you to the promised land. Yeah, he's, he's disgusted with them because they have sinned boldly. Not only that, if you ever want to get somebody mad, go ask your mom and your dad if you still have the ability. If you are a mother and a father, you know that nothing makes you angrier than being rejected in what you're trying to give to your children. Ungrateful children can just send you straight up the wall. You go out, you do your best. The songwriter said, you go out and get them some Converse and they want a Nike. You go out and get them the best you can give them. And they th throw it back in your face. And here God is. God has created a food for them. And they reject it. God has, in, has given them the best that heaven can provide for them. And they said to him, there's no bread and there ain't no water out here either. Oh, you talking about sending the flag up the holy flagpole. God is upset with them. He's disgusted by the ingratitude being displayed. And God had provided for them every single day. And yet they lie on him and say he's not been a good provider. So not only do they reject his person, his promise, and his provision, watch this, they also reject his prophet. Moses has shown up for work every day for 40 years. Moses has gone into the heat of the battle. He's argued with the palace, and he's bargained with God just for the people of Israel, and yet they got a nerve to point the finger at him and say, and Moses hadn't done anything for us either. This is an ungrateful group of folk. And so because of that, because of their ingratitude, God allowed. Now, now there's nowhere in the text, nowhere in the text, the version of the Bible you read, might read a little bit different. The version I have said, so God. So God, starting in that verse 4. So implies that something has happened before that required somebody to take an action. Yeah, so he slapped me, 
so I hit him back. That's what happened. I didn't just hit him, but he slapped me first. They disrespected God, so God allowed a circumstance to come into their midst. It doesn't say anywhere, it doesn't say anywhere that God created a serpent for them. Watch this. It doesn't say anywhere that God made a special punishment for them. This is what I believe. Watch this. I believe the serpents had already been out there in the desert. I believe the serpents were around them all the time. I believe that God in his goodness had been keeping the serpents off of them for 40 years, and yet they didn't appreciate the fact that right there under their feet was some poison that would take care of them, so God just took his hand off of them. Now watch this. If you want to know how good God has been to you, don't try cussing him out. Because if he takes his hand off of you right now, there's no turning, no telling what manner of evil can come upon you because he's taking care of us every single day. I wouldn't challenge God, not if this is an example, because the Bible says in verse 4 that he allowed. Wow. 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 Verse 6 says, so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. Verse 6. So Israel gets a sentence it deserves because of the sin it committed. How, how is this sentence enacted? Well, first of all, you should know this. The serpents were deserved. Oh, they deserved to be spanked based on the way they were, taking, they were talking to the Lord. They deserved to have consequences. That's one of the problems we have in raising children today. We don't allow them to realize the natural consequences of their conduct. We're always trying to protect them. We want to be the prophylactic over every problem they have in life. We want them to never feel the sting of their choices. And that becomes a problem for them. Because you block everything, they think nothing can happen to them. God only allowed them to realize the choice of their action. Watch this now. Watch this. The serpents were well-deserved. And the serpents were also dreadful. Oh, they were dreadful. They're called fiery serpents. Maybe because they looked red in color. The research on vipers that were available in that region, that are available in that region today, tells us that those kinds of vipers, when they inject their venom, they leave a red stinging pain, a stinging wound, which it might be why they called them fire serpents. Not only that, the wound that you get is such that the venom starts destroying your blood, which means that you start bleeding from those areas that are near the surface because your body can't contain the blood anymore because the blood has been broken down. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that you die a miserable, horrible death from this. And look how many people we had in the camp at that time. Two to four million people. People were dying left and right. Just think about it. If 10% of the people were bitten by serpents during this time, we're talking between 200 and 400,000 people who were bitten and suffering during this time. Oh, that's a misery in the camp. God has allowed them to realize the detriment of their own conduct. 
The serpents were not only needed based on their, their, their sin, the sentence was just. It was a just sentence. Not only did they deserve it, not only was it a dreadful sentence, they were deadly. People were dying left and right. Now think about this, and I want you to put this into whatever context you want. There was no hospital. There, there, there were no doctors. There was nobody to come aid them during this time. There's no anti-venom that you can call for. People were just laying around in misery. Young and old throughout the whole camp were struggling every day because of the violence problem that had come into the community. This is a desperate situation. Because it's a desperate situation, Israel that was triumphant a short time ago but then got disrespectful, is now sorrowful. I wonder, I wonder sometimes when I sit up and I see how low circumstances have brought people under various situations. Just a minute ago you were celebrating and now you're sorrowful. Life has a way of equalizing circumstances. Not only that, life has a way of showing you what's really important. Life also has a way of showing you just what you do for yourself and who else feeds into you. I found this to be the case. Can't nobody do me like the Lord. I can't provide for myself like the Lord can. So I, I decided a long time ago that I was going to get out of the management role of my life and let the Lord be my manager. The problems I get into is when I decide to take the wheel for a little while. Every time I get the wheel back from the Lord, it seems like I have a rick somewhere. And we got people who always driving themselves into ditches because they think that they can always control the circumstances. That's what happened here. Forty years, God had driven them on a pathway to righteousness, a pathway to goodness, a pathway, pathway to the promised land, and yet they decided they wanted to take the wheel at this point. And here they go. They drive into viper after viper, into problem after problem. It's just a terrible situation. And so they're in sorrow. But what do you do, Anissa, when you find yourself in life, when you've made some choices? that are not good for you. When you realize that I have put myself in a bad situation, not only have I sinned, I've done it against God. I've disrespected how good God has been for me. The formula is the same for everybody. The same as it was for the children of Israel, it's the same formula for me and you. And we see it materialized here, starting in verse seven. They run quickly, Anthony, quickly, to the man that they had been disrespected. They didn't want Moses a few minutes ago, a short time ago, and now they turn right around and run back to Moses, and they came to him and they said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and watch this, and we've been bad talking you too, Moses. And then the Lord said to him, and then they said to him, please, Moses, have the Lord take the serpents away from us. Pray that the Lord will remove. It's amazing, it's amazing. The things that hold no value to you suddenly become the most valuable thing in your life when you put things in perspective. And so in their sorrow, they gave us a pattern that we have to follow when it comes to getting things right with the Lord. The first thing is we gotta be convicted that we're wrong in the first place, all right? We got to be convicted. It can be a deadly snake bite, 
It can be any circumstance that puts you in what we call a sinful state, far from the Lord. You gotta be convicted that what you're doing is wrong. Some of us have been praying mightily for folk who ain't praying for themselves. Some of us have been trying to reach out to folk and help them, and they actually like the situation they're in. They're not sick and tired of being sick and tired of that situation. I know you see how tore up their life is. I know you realize how many resources they throw away, living the lifestyle they live, but they don't see it yet. And until they can see it, until they are convicted that they're living wrong, then you are just praying in vain because when you ain't praying for yourself in fact they may be praying the opposite they may come in and say mama i wish you leave me in the lawn me alone me and the lord got this that's how arrogant sin is that's how arrogant the devil is the devil will have folk believe in y'all that 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 it's hard to live as a christian but this story right here will tell you that Sin will make you sorrowful. When you sin against the Lord, oh, it's a mass, massively sin, uh, sorrowful way to live. And I've seen enough people wallowing in their own habits. I've seen enough people who were living in a way that was beneath what they're able to live in. I've seen enough people who had better ability to do and live life than they're exercising. And they never, ever, pride won't let you do it. Pride won't let you admit, I made bad choices. But whenever you can hit that bottom, whenever you can get to that place and acknowledge that I've been wrong, he's there. That's what I love about the Lord. God is right there. He's right there to catch you and hold you and build you up. But first, you got to be convicted. Second, you got to confess. You got to say it. You don't have to run down the aisle at any church building, but you got to let the Lord know I messed up. And I'm ready and big enough to fess up that I messed up, Lord, so please help me. And the next thing you got to show is contrition. I've seen a whole lot of folk who seem convicted. They even confess. They run down, but they don't change their lifestyle. They still want to live in the same way. Contrition means that I'm trying to change things. Contrition means that I'm trying to go a different way and live my life differently. That's what repentance is. It means to turn away and go a different way than you've been going. And so the sorrowful life that Israel had was changed because they followed the formula of conviction, confession, and contrition. And that led to what I love about the Lord. I love this. That he came in, he's true to his word, Karen. He came in and brought salvation to him. He's our savior. Yeah, yeah. God saved them. He came in with a solution. And what he did was interesting. And I, I, I love the lesson that came out of this because he told Moses, Moses, take the thing that's been killing them and use it as an instrument to deliver them. It's an amazing thing. He said, take the snake that they've been getting bitten by, make a bronze image of it and put it up on a pole. And all they have to do to you is look at the pole and they'll live. Look at the pole. Now, that's counterintuitive. You mean I need to look at what's been killing me? The last thing I want to do is look at a snake because a snake is calling me causing me misery. And yet, that's what he told them to do. And so watch this. Moses does what God tells him to do. He takes the serpent and puts it on the pole. 
in the shape of bronze. Now you got to understand why bronze was important. Bronze was a symbol of guilt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brass. It was a symbol of judgment in the Bible. And being lifted up on a pole means that you are cursed. And so he takes the, sim the symbol of judgment and curse. This is what scripture says. Galatians 3 and 13 says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And so you take the symbol of judgment and guilt and you put it up for everyone to look at. But there's a distinct difference here. Watch this now. If you don't get anything else out of this, this is what the Lord, the serpent on the pole had the outward shape of the problem, but it didn't have the inward poison of the problem. That's why there was healing involved. So you can take a man who looked like he sinned and put him on a cross, but if there's no sin in him, then he becomes the solution instead of the problem. And that's what we got right here. This is a precursor to what God would have his son, Jesus Christ, doing. If you just look at this serpent, you'll live. Now watch this, all over the camp. The word is traveling, destiny. People are saying, look up there at the serpent and you'll get better. Look up there at the serpent in the middle of the camp and you'll get better. All around the word is spreading like wildfire. You don't have to do anything but look at it and you'll live. All you have to do is follow what the man of God tells you to do. Look at it and you'll live. Now watch this. Everybody had to look themselves. Mama couldn't look for you, baby. I went out there and looked at it. You feel better? No. You got to get up and look yourself. So the healing was individual. Not only that, it was infallible. If you looked at it, you were healed because God don't lie. He tells you, if you look at it, you're going to be all right. You just got to have the courage to do it. Watch this. Some people have been in sin and were sick so long. They were sunk down. They couldn't have a vantage point to look at it. But all they had to do was crack their eyes and get a glimpse of glory, get a glimpse of it, and they would do better. So not only was it individual, not only was it infallible, but it was also instantaneous. Immediately once you looked at it, you got better. And I got to tell you right this, right now, no matter what else they had in the camp, looking at that bronze serpent made that serpent invaluable. There was nothing that made more sense. Nothing they wanted more than to look at that serpent. And so I came to ask you today, I know you see some similarities here between watching that serpent and the man that came later on, 2,000 years, and put up, and they put him on a cross. I know, I know for a fact, you see some similarity between the serpent and Jesus Christ. You know why? Because that's exactly what, the God, what God was trying to show us. That I'm the Savior here, but I'm also going to send you a Savior. And the Savior is going to be just like this serpent on a tree. We're going to put him up. He's going to have the body of problem, but he's going to be sinless. And all you have to do is look at him. Watch this now. Watch this. In the Old Testament, the theory was look and live. But in the New Testament, it's believe and live. Either way it goes, when you look on Jesus Christ, you shall live. Songwriter said it a long time ago, I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah. 
and it's only that you look and live. A message to you I'll give. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah, and it's only that you look and live. Look unto Jesus Christ. He is the provider of your salvation. Lift him up wherever you go. You ought to be talking about him wherever you go. You ought to be lifting up the name of Jesus so other folk can look at him and live too. He died for us, but he wasn't sinful when he died. He had sin on him, but he wasn't sinful when he died. He carried sin away from here, but he was the only one qualified to be our savior, and he was an all-sufficient savior. So wherever you go, you ought to be telling the story. Alvin, lift him up when you go to work. Lift him up when you go to school. Lift him up in your house. Lift him up so that other folk too can look and live. God bless you today. I'm so thankful we had this time just to share in a word again. I can't wait to see you next week. This Wednesday, we'll be right back with 45 Minutes of Purpose. Tune in on our various modes uh, at 6.30 on Wednesday night. God bless you. Can't wait to see you.